Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday. It is October 2nd. And wow, it has been a busy week. There is no shortage of things to talk about. So we're just going to get right into things. The biggest news, of course, is that Donald Trump, along with Melania Trump, Kellyanne Conway, Senators Tom Tillis and Mike Lee, and potentially many others in the White House now have the coronavirus. This is terrible and scary, but also some people on social media appear to view it as karmic justice, noting that Trump has played down the threat of this deadly disease since it took hold in the states, has refused to abide by his own administration's health experts about how to avoid contracting it, and as recently as the debate on Tuesday night, mocked Joe Biden for consistently wearing a mask, even though the CDC director has said that masks may be more effective than a vaccine when it comes to saving lives. Trump said just two weeks ago, it affects virtually nobody. Which brings us to social media, where a lot of people have a lot to say about Donald Trump contracting the coronavirus. Naturally, there have been outpourings of support, but also there are people who frankly are relishing this moment. Quote, he's in several high-risk groups. He's elderly, obese, and low income, read one of the nicer tweets. There are many, many more of the you reap what you sow variety. As it happens, two of the world's biggest social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook, are handling things pretty differently on this front, as the outlet Motherboard reported earlier today. Twitter told the outlet that users are not allowed to openly hope for anyone's death on the platform, and that tweets to do so will, quote, have to be removed, and that they may have their accounts put into, quote, read-only mode. So if you wish death on Trump, don't be surprised to see this sentiment yanked. Meanwhile, Facebook has different rules for speech, distinguishing between public figures and private individuals. In fact, it only really draws a line for users who attack a public figure who is then tagged in a post or comments. In short, Per mother load, it's okay to post on Facebook that you hope Trump dies, so long as you do not tag him in the post or, quote, purposefully expose him to, quote, calls for death, serious disease, epidemic disease, or disability. According to Reuters, vacation rental service Airbnb is looking to raise $3 billion in its planned December initial public offering. Airbnb's valuation would value the company at a staggering $30 billion. Airbnb's recovery from the COVID shutdown earlier this year has been nothing less than stellar. The company said in July that customers had booked more than 1 million nights in a single day for the first time since March 3rd. Apparently, travelers are flocking to the site because they believe small rentals offer less coronavirus exposure than large hotel chains. A $30 billion valuation would certainly be quite a statement. Just six months ago, it raised $2 billion at an $18 billion valuation. Such a big valuation will also validate Airbnb's decision to pass on Bill Ackman's offer to take the company public last month via a SPAC. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong created the latest shitstorm in Silicon Valley when, last weekend, he let employees know in an open letter that Coinbase would adopt a stance against employee-driven corporate activism, explaining that going forward, it will be a mission-focused company. What that means to Armstrong is more innovation, efficiency, and equality of opportunity in the world by creating an open financial system. 
But also, let's face it, making lots of money in the process too. This is a venture-backed pre-IPO company, after all, whose shareholders and founders and employees expect to get paid. Naturally, plenty of people came out of the woodwork, many of them to call bullshit on a company that says it's mission-driven, yet wants to squash the ability of its employees to be activists. Did Armstrong back down, though? No. He merely barreled forward, telling employees that if they don't like Coinbase's new direction, they can pound sand, though Coinbase is also willing to pay them four to six months severance on their way out the door. What was more surprising was some of the vitriol that followed this chain of events on Twitter. Jack Dorsey himself tweeted his disapproval of Armstrong steering his company away from corporate activism, and a lot of other libertarian types, some of whom happened to be investors in Coinbase, applauded Armstrong for his leadership. I don't know what happens next, and I kind of don't care, honestly, but I think Coinbase should know soon enough if Armstrong did the right thing or the wrong thing here based on who stays and who goes, who joins the company, and who decides to look elsewhere for their next gig. So far, it sounds like just a handful of people have left the 1,200-person organization. Fitness tech is feeling the burn. In June, Lululemon acquired Mirror, a wall-mounted machine for streaming workout classes, for $500 million. In September, Tonal, another manufacturer of cutting-edge exercise hardware, raised $110 million. And Swift, a startup that hosts virtual reality cycle races, raised $450 million in a funding round that valued it at more than $1 billion. Now come reports that another next-gen exercise company, Strava, a social network for athletes, is raising between $150 million and $400 million at a billion-dollar-plus valuation. COVID and social distancing have made visiting the local gym next to impossible. As a result, futuristic fitness startups like Strava are acquiring new users in leaps and bounds. Strava's membership has reportedly increased over 35% since just February. If the company, which notably is profitable, does succeed in achieving unicorn status, it will undoubtedly be a big win for investors Sequoia Capital, GoFort Capital, Jackson Square Ventures, and Madrone Capital Partners, a family office tied to the billionaire Walton family. The company's last round of $41 million was reportedly done at just a $365 million valuation. The Information had an interesting story out today about Tribe Capital, a venture firm formed two years ago by basically everyone at Social Capital except Social Capital founder Chamath Palhapatiya. Tribe has been actively investing since its formation. It backs seed to growth stage companies. But now, according to the firm, it has been working on a program called First Look that will allow qualified individuals, meaning those with a net worth of more than $1 million and an annual income of $200,000, to co-invest in startups in deals underwritten and managed by Tribe. The information says Tribe has been testing the program with investors who back venture funds or limited partners. And that is not so interesting, given that limited partners have been co-investing directly with venture funds they back for many years now. More interesting is who else can invest along Tribe in these deals. In an interview, Tribe Capital partner Arjun Sethi told the outlet that he envisions the program as something like AngelList, matching startups seeking capital with people who aren't necessarily professional investors. But he said he sees an opportunity to fuse the crowdfunding capabilities of an AngelList with the qualities of a more traditional venture firm. AngelList might argue that it has plenty of traditional VC types on its platform already. I'm also wondering most immediately if this is basically a bunch of SPVs or special purpose vehicles, which VCs sometimes raise from external investors when they want to put more money into a breakout deal, but maybe don't have access to all the capital they need or doing so would sort of overweight them in that deal if they were to use all of their own capital. Either way, it's always interesting when firms try to get creative, either by trying to develop new products or even honestly, finding new ways to market products that have been around a while. We'll be looking for more details about this one before deciding which is which in this case. 
Up next, our interview with Jessica Alter of Tech Entrepreneur, who co-founded Tech for Campaigns, an initiative that is seeking to help Democrats catch up and surpass the digital marketing expertise of their Republican foes. But first, a word from our sponsor. Affinity has become the new standard for managing relationships and increasing deal flow. Using patented technology, Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by eliminating manual data entry and unlocking introductions to key decision makers. In industries where success is contingent on maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network so you can more easily open doors and close deals. You can learn more at Affinity.co or listen to their new podcast, Capital Connection, where they interview top investors about how their network influenced their success. Find Capital Connections on Spotify or Apple Podcast. We're so thrilled to have Jessica Alter with us today, the co-founder of Tech for Campaigns. Jessica, for listeners who aren't familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about who you are and why you started this organization. Hi, Connie. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Like probably a lot of people listening to this conversation, pre-2017, I was pretty uninvolved in politics. I was just a typical techie working at early stage companies, started one as well. And in 2017, my co-founders and I got very frustrated. I think the crucible moment for me was the first Muslim ban. And given what our skill sets are and who we know, we decided to try to look at helping on the tech and digital front. We had a hunch that in the 2016 election, Trump had wiped the floor with us on tech and digital. Meaning Democrats? Us meaning Democrats, yes. And we were more right than we honestly wanted to be. So we realized pretty quickly that the Democrats are quite far behind, probably eight to 10 years behind the Republicans. I know that's hard for people to believe. And usually people say, but what about Obama? He was good at tech and digital. But part of the problem is that doesn't help the rest of the Democrats the way that things are structured right now. So all of that was really thrown out. And I mean that in the most literal sense. And TV and mail still really rule the roost in politics. So in 2018 is just one example for all of the media attention that digital advertising gets. For every donor dollar that was given, only three to five cents went to digital. Most of the rest went to TV and mail. So it's really tertiary. And on the tech tools side and data, we're, we're also far behind. So Part of the problem is that there really isn't an organization whose main thrux is to focus on tech and digital. It's siloed and a part of every organization, but no one organization is permanently focused on it. So that's really the hole that Tech for Campaigns is filling. And the way that we do that is a hybrid of our full-time team. We're awesome. in number about two dozen and over 14,000 tech and digital volunteers. So anyone from a designer to a product person to engineers to digital marketers, email marketers, et cetera. 
all those volunteers have come to you. It's all been inbound. They've said, we've heard of you. We want to help. We have X amount of time to donate to a campaign. And then you assign that person to a campaign or do they come to you saying, I come from this small town in Ohio and I want to help? It's a good question. It's sort of a double opt-in system that we've built. So you sign up, you do tell us your hometown in addition to where you live now. We will try to match on affinity, but we first match on skill set. We talk to all the campaigns and we develop projects with them. We have a menu of projects and we know, okay, if it's an email project, it needs these skill sets. And then an email goes out to people with those skill sets filtered down by affinity, meaning where you come from. And if you've said, I'm ex-military, I want to work with someone like that. And that person can opt in. Mm -hmm. So you opt into the community. And when you do that, you get alerted when your skill sets needed on a campaign. And then when your skills that's needed, you opt in again to that project. Can I drill down a little bit into the differences between Democrats and Republicans and the way that they've approached digital operations? Because I've always been puzzled about why Democrats have fallen so far behind. You said part of the reason is the way that Democratic campaigns are structured. Is it different on the Republican side? Do they have a more unified digital operation? It's different on the Republican side for a couple of reasons. One is the Republican Party. They operate in a much different way. The Republicans in general are a much more centralized organization. And when the RNC or leaders say to do things, it trickles down and people do it. I'm sure a lot of people have heard the saying, Republicans fall in line, Democrats fall in love. There's nothing that I've heard and understood to be more true than that. The Democrats are just much more decentralized, and so it's hard for things to trickle down as much. So that's one. Two, the Republicans started focusing on two things about 15 years ago. One was tech and digital, maybe 10 years ago. And because they're centralized, it's bled through. They've they've made a, a bigger investment in it. They operate much more on their donor side like a conglomerate. The Democrats operate much more like a portfolio. So there's not as much cooperation. It's just not happening. So the Cokes and the Mercers not only believe in digital, but there's like a shared infrastructure there. One example is they have a data exchange that they've had for eight years. The Democrats are are still building a first version of theirs. And there's two or three versions of a centralized data exchange, which is sort of the opposite of the point of centralization. So that's one reason And the other reason is just in general, it's very hard. If you believe in incentives, which I do, that it's very hard for people who are running millions of dollars in TV ads and getting a percentage of that buy to then say, oh, yeah, we'll run your stuff on digital instead and we'll make less money and it'll be harder for us. But we'll do that. It doesn't make sense for them. The economics for a campaign manager for digital operations is much lower than it is for TV and radio. Yeah, radio. it costs less on digital. It's not the campaign manager. There's a big consultant culture in politics. And the top of that consultant culture pyramid is TV. Second is mail, as in the kind you get in your mailbox, not the one that's delivered to your email. And digital is tertiary. Just as and- an example, I just got data this morning from Change Research that says, only 33% of 18 to 40-year-olds report seeing a digital ad from the Democratic Party or Biden. To that point, 
in August, you put out a charticle that showed that Google ad spend has been dramatically lower for Biden than it has been for Trump. It seems like the Democrats have identified this problem. They knew about it after the 2016 election. You're trying to lead a change, but are you still fighting a lot of cultural resistance? Oh, yeah. So the strategy for tech for campaigns on where we fight has been much more at the state legislative level. And by the way, that's where Republicans fight, too. And the reason is threefold. One is the elbows are a lot less sharp. So we've been able to make a ton of inroads there. In the last three years, we've helped almost 500 campaigns on almost 700 projects. So the scale is real. But also the state level campaigns are this concentric circle overlap between incredibly strategic, incredibly cheap and incredibly ignored. And that's where we focus a lot of our time and effort, especially on the volunteer side. We have three prongs. One is talent. That's our full-time teams and our volunteers. We focus the volunteers largely on the state level stuff. We have some full-time teams working on vote by mail at the federal level. Technology, which is done by our full-time team on engineering and product. We build tools that get shared across states and campaigns, which sounds very normal to everyone in tech. Like, Of course, you're going to share tech tools across states and campaigns, but That's actually not how it typically works. We were showing one of our tools to one of the state Democratic parties and their comment was, oh, we try to build this every two years. And if that's happening in Maine, they don't show it to Michigan, not because they don't like each other, they just don't talk. And so every two years, your donors are paying to rebuild the same thing. And the third prong is training, just as a symptom of the problem that we're behind on technology and digital There isn't any standard tech or digital training for Democratic candidates or their staffers. So when we go into states, which again are just the highest ROI, we provide that. And not in the sense that we're going to make them gurus of how to run digital ads or data or anything like that, just in the sense that they understand why it's different, what the power of it is, in essence, to make them more demanding of whomever they're working with on the digital side. Jessica, it sounds from what you're saying, it's a mess. (laughs) It's chaos out there. You're giving these campaigns tools and information they didn't have. But of course, campaigns disband over time. There obviously needs to be some centralized arm for the Democratic Party. Could tech for campaigns be that arm? Are they holding on to the tools and information that you're providing them? The whole mission of tech for campaigns is to be the permanent tech and digital arm for the Democrats campaigns, as you rightly said, disband every two years and break down completely. Within a week and a half, everyone scatters. So you can't expect that to change completely. And so the whole mission of Tech for Campaigns is to be this lasting presence in tech and digital that subsists cycle over cycle, between cycles, takes what we've done, understands what worked and didn't work, makes ourselves better, and yeah, shares that knowledge improves upon the tools. That, that is the whole mission of Tech for Campaigns. To just help in one cycle, it's to be this permanent presence that can build a real competitive advantage. Because if you break everything down every two years, you will never win at Tech and Digital. So you're not going to raise a pack to advocate for issues. It's purely to be an infrastructure play for the Democrats? We're right now advocating for vote by mail, but we're not advocating for specific issues as tech for campaigns. People sometimes say, what are your biggest issues? And I half jokingly say winning. 
<laughs> Winning's our biggest issue. There's only so many things you can advocate for. We're really focused on our campaigns and some of the big, bigger picture or even bigger ticket items. So vote by mail, if you consider that an issue, yes. We have a big registration program around that for infrequent voters, but we don't take sides on issues as the organization. Yeah, I understand that winning is really important. It just seems that you guys have the tools. And if you could just execute on an issue that you really believed in, you would do it more effectively than having to do it through the filter of a campaign. I'm glad you asked. I want to go back to a second for the states. So state legislatures, state houses, and state senates are just bar none, the highest ROI place to spend time and money. State legislatures control basically every major issue that you, I, or anyone listening to this cares about. That includes healthcare, that includes voting rights, that includes the environment, that includes education, that includes women's right to choose. If Roe v. Wade gets overturned, it's not that abortion is illegal, it's that the states will decide. And then most importantly, in in fact, and why the Republicans have chosen to focus on state legislatures is that the state legislatures in most states also control federal redistricting. So if you own the state legislatures, you actually own all those issues and how federal outcomes will be decided for a decade at a time. 2020 is a census year. After a census year, the congressional lines are redrawn by the state legislatures. Nancy Pelosi does not draw or have any even input into how her district is drawn. The state legislatures do that. And the party in control are the ones that actually get to decide that. In 2010, the Republicans started a project called Red Map, which decided, okay, we want to own these issues and we want to own redistricting. And state legislatures are about one one hundredth of the cost of a federal race. This is where we're going to put our money. It's just a good ROI decision. And I think the thing that people need to understand is that Republicans run things like a business and they make very good ROI-based decisions. I don't find that to be true with Democrats nearly enough. And that's across the board. I don't find it to be true with campaigns. I don't find it to be true with the party. I don't find it to be true with donors. So you have very analytical people who in their normal lives are extremely focused on ROI. And when they get to politics are just purely emotional. I understand it, but it doesn't serve the end goal. So state legislatures are just where the Democrats got decimated. Sadly, during the Obama years, we lost a thousand seats. We lost control of most states. And that's why it's been so hard to fight back. That's why we have all these problems with the big issues like voting rights, like abortion. Those are controlled by the states. Roe v. Wade is only going to get challenged because in certain states, the Republicans own the state legislatures and they've passed really crazy laws knowing that it could go to the Supreme Court. That is the strategy. That's a 15-year strategy. So they really control a lot of things. And just to give you an example of ROI that's, I think, very stark, I know people are very focused on the U.S. Senate. Tom Tillis is the current senator in North Carolina that's up for re-election. He's a Republican. Directly before he was elected to the U.S. Senate, he was in the North Carolina House. He was actually the Speaker of the North Carolina House. His last race in 2013 cost $170,000. So we could have beat him, hopefully, for that amount. Now we're spending $50 million 
probably more, to try to beat him at the U.S. Senate. I guess what I'm saying to people is the Republicans decided they're going to spend 170 all day long. That's just a better way for them to spend money. Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, Barack Obama, Maxine Waters, all of those people came up through state legislatures. So it's not only it's not only the Republicans that we're supporting there, it's great Democrats that we can lift up. Instead, we focus on it when it's super expensive. We could be preventing the next Tom Tillis, the next Marco Rubio for a lot less money, but we just get the shiny object syndrome and we throw money at a $50 million race. I'm sure that all of our Democratic listeners are right now crying into their carpeting. <laughs> it's, 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 this is, these are great insights into a very troubling picture that you have and very few others do. I understand your objectives. How do you reach these? First of all, I don't understand how Tech for Campaigns is sustained. Do you operate on donations, grants? Is there a money-making yes. component of this business? We're a 527 nonprofit, so we are mostly sustained off donations. Because of campaign finance, we do sell software that we build, but it's not a big business. So we are mostly sustained off donations from individuals and organizations. So it's a partisan operation. Part of the reason that the state legislatures don't get help is because the races don't raise that much money. So it's not that economically exciting for the consultants to come in there. Which, I, look, I, I totally get. If I were running a for-profit business, it's not where I would spend time either. But it's not really a good money-making investment. That, but political tech is not like a venture-backed business. It's a small market that's extremely cyclical. And to get them to value the product in any huge capitalistic way. So we're definitely a nonprofit. And we're definitely supported by the generosity of donors. And that's that's how it works. And because you're not competing, so to speak, against consultants looking for a, a payday, they're pretty receptive to what you have to say when you approach a campaign? I think there are definitely moments where we butt up against consultants who feel threatened, either because they feel like we're telling a story about how they haven't historically done a great job, or just in general, I think it's, it's human nature to feel threatened by someone coming in. But more importantly, the campaigns and the state parties are very excited to see us. Here in Silicon Valley, as we call it, things become so charged. Of course, it's become charged everywhere. But you and I were talking before we hit record about how you can tweet about something that seems fairly innocuous and so, sort of surprising who comes out of the woodwork to complain about a particular sentiment. I, I've just never seen anything like this in my life. So I'm wondering, when people volunteer for tech for campaigns, are they worried about revealing their political affiliations in a way that they weren't before? Or is the opposite happening? Are they worried about revealing them to who? I don't know, their coworkers, their employers? I don't think so. I, I actually feel like there's a lot more desire for people to be outspoken in the last few years, even more so than there was between 2016 and 2018, because things have gotten so out of control that I, I feel like people really want a way to channel their, at best, I think, frustration and at worst, their, their anger and sadness. So 
we don't find that people want to hide it. No. Oh, good. Well, I did want to ask, you know, I saw you tweet in response to Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong's decision earlier this week to essentially ban politics from the workplace. And yesterday or the day before, he said he's actually going to be offering employees who don't like it severance packages of four to six months, which is also pretty shocking. What do you make of that decision? I would say three things about it. The decision to try to quell any discourse within your company. First of all, you can run your company any way you want. That's not my decision. It's not how I would run, obviously, any company. I, I don't need to run tech for campaigns that way because it's inherently, you know, political. But you can run anything you want any way you want. I'm capitalistic and I think that's your choice and that's fine. I think what we're seeing in the technology sphere, not just in Silicon Valley, is not that running a company that way is the problem. I think we're seeing a bait and switch issue, which is you lured people in with the promise of a mission, a big mission, you know, making the world more connected or giving the world financial freedom right. and then telling people to, in, in essence, shut up and dribble. I think it's that inconsistency that people are pissed about. You're not seeing people at J.P. Morgan protest because no one told them that J.P. Morgan was set up to do any of this crazy mission stuff. And so it's okay to run your company like that, but you cannot have it both ways. You can't claim this big, big mission and then tell people, just kidding. You tweeted, stating out loud that you think economic freedom and social justice can be conveniently disconnected is the epitome of why Silicon Valley has a bad reputation were you surprised at the response you received to that tweet? I actually got great response to that tweet overall. But honestly, yes, I am surprised about how many people support the Coinbase piece. I think, again, you can run your company any way you want. You just cannot have it both ways. The other two things I would say in general are I don't find social justice, equal rights, voting rights. I, I don't find I think those political issues. Totally agree. Those are human rights. Like. Prop C, tax policy, those are political issues. I don't think that every company, even that does want to be involved, needs to chime in on every issue. But I don't find it controversial to say Black Lives Matter. I don't find it controversial to support what I consider basic human rights. So I think it's very misleading almost to call those political issues. They're, they're human rights issues. And the third thing I would say in general is, look, there are two trends happening, and it's the coalescence of these two trends that I think we're seeing. One is companies just have a bigger role to play as they get more powerful, and I think the federal government in particular is at least seen as less effective. And big tech companies have gotten much bigger and much more powerful in the last 10 years. And so they're at the forefront of this. And you saw that with the business roundtable you know, declaration that profit is not enough. And the second big trend is that I think a lot of people are more aware and extremely bothered by what's going on in the country and in the world. And they don't feel like they can sit back and not do anything anymore. We can debate till we're blue in the face whether these trends are good or bad, but like any trend, you cannot stop it. And so you're seeing companies have more control People that work at those companies want to see more done, and they at least want to know they're not contributing to the ills of the world. You can decide that your company doesn't want to do that, but 
there will be ramifications there and you will attract certain kinds of people if you don't support those. And, and that might be fine for you. That's a decision. Sure. But I just see this as like an unstoppable trend. The other thing I would just say, like I'm a white female and I don't pretend that I grew up with anything but privilege. But it's not like women and minorities wake up every morning just super pumped to talk about all the issues that plague us. It's that we don't have a choice. And so this idea that you can come to work as your whole self, like Silicon Valley pushes, and leave that at the door all the time is just sort of silly. We talk about these issues because we can't escape them. And so it's a real privilege to say, this doesn't affect us. It doesn't need to affect you. I think you'll attract a very homogeneous workforce if you don't allow people to have those conversations. Jessica, I feel that we've taken up enough of your time and this has been so informative, but I did want to ask before we go, obviously not all of our listeners want to see a president Joe Biden, but for those who do and have concerns about many other campaigns to which you referred, how can they help you? I know that you've tripled, it looks like the number of volunteers that are working with tech for campaigns over the last couple of years. Aside from just coming to the site, is there anything specific that you need right now? Yeah, I would say, first of all, for those of you who are, as Connie said, crying in your carpet or crying at all, (laughs) um, we are solving this. It's not a one month or even a one cycle solve. So yeah, get in touch with us about what you can do. Of course, you can volunteer directly on the site, but we're having a big fundraiser on October 14th with myself and Mayor Pete. I think if you're bothered by what you've heard, and want to be part of the solution, and you work in tech, you can't expect non-tech people to solve all the tech and data problems while you give to a random Senate race. That's not fair or realistic. That's great. And we'll look for that fundraiser on October 14th. Jessica, thank you so much again for joining us. We learned a lot today. Thank you, guys. That's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe. Stay sane. See you next week. Mm